Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio. If you're a screenwriter, I really can't recommend this screenwriting software enough. When I sit down to write, I want to stay focused on my story. Arc Studio's minimalist and dare I say beautiful interface allows me to do just that. It has seamless real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, meaning that if you like to collaborate with other writers as I do, Arc Studio has all the tools to keep you and whoever you're working with, both literally and figuratively, on the same page. Importing and exporting other formats such as PDFs or final draft files is easy. And best of all, Arc Studio has an always free plan, so you can sign up today and start writing. If you spring for a pro plan, you'll be able to download Arc Studio's desktop and mobile app. You'll also get access to pro features like outlining and real-time collaboration. Head to arcstudiopro.com to take your screenwriting software to the next level. Check the link in today's episode's show notes to find out more and get writing. It's about the majesty of black womanhood and independence and freedom of knowing who you are, what you are, why you are, and your worth. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why. From first draft to the big screen. Today, we're launching a very special awards season miniseries. Yes, it's that time of year again. The Oscars and BAFTAs are around the corner, and to celebrate over the next few weeks, we're going to be chatting to writers responsible for some of the most astounding movies of the last 12 months, all of which would make worthy winners at this year's ceremonies, if you ask us. First up, we're delighted to be joined by the excellent Ruben Santiago Hudson, writer of the acclaimed Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Adapted from a play by the legendary August Wilson, Ruben's screenplay transported audiences to a swelteringly hot 1920s Chicago, inside a bustling recording studio where across one afternoon, blues pioneer Ma Rainey is scheduled to record new material. Things, however, don't go quite to plan, and as the temperature rises, so do tensions between Ma, played by the astonishing Viola Davis, and Levy, an ambitious but emotionally wounded young trumpet player played by the late, great Chadwick Boseman. I caught up with Ruben to hear how he translated these beautifully complex characters from stage to screen. Delving into his close friendship with August Wilson, some curious differences between his early drafts and the final film, and the importance of acknowledging on screen that the real-life Ma was a woman whose sexuality was fluid and whose spirit of generosity ran strong. This is a spoiler-filled conversation if you hadn't already guessed, so if you're yet to see this remarkable movie, I really do encourage you to hit pause now, go check out Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix, then come back as we dive into every detail of this incredible film. If you enjoy what we do, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as that really helps the word get out there about this show. And if you'd like to be the first to find out what the next film in our award season miniseries is going to be, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Script Apart on both. Till next time, a one, a two, you know what to do. This is Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey, Ruben, so great to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine. There has been such a wonderful reaction to this wonderful film. I guess let's start at the beginning. I, I know it was 1984 when you first experienced August's incredible stage version of this story. 
Can you tell me about your experience of the play and your first interpretations of what this story was about? I actually w was um, coming off a tour heading into New York to go off Broadway. So I was in a wonderful play called Ceremonies of Dark Old Men mm. uh, at the Negro Ensemble Company. And I was in town and uh, everybody was talking about this August Wilson play in this August Wilson writer. I already knew Lloyd Richards, the director, because um, he was um, a person that I had, had looked up to and admired and been following his career and trying to find a way to work with him. So I found my way into the theater uh, at intermission, actually, because I couldn't afford a full price ticket. So I found <laughs> the way to, you know, just slide in and get up as high as you could in the double balcony way up top. I sat on the stairs and the lights came on and and these gentlemen started talking and I'm. I started listening and I was like, I got so comfortable. It was like, well, I know these people. These are the people that I was raised with. This is my Uncle Bill and this is, uh, you know, Elijah Winfield. And this is, you know, she, I, I just knew him. And, and I just leaned in and I was totally enraptured by how casual, how, how, how wonderful the rapture of their language was because I knew it. I felt comfortable. And then suddenly I felt it, something on my face and I, and I, I thought it was a fly, but it actually was tears. I started crying because I, I, I never knew that there was a place on Broadway for these salt-of-the-earth blue-collar men who had basically taught me most everything I knew other than what Mama taught me <laughs> about life. And there they were. So I knew I had to be a part of it, and I, and I started chasing them. I left a little note right then for August and Lloyd, and I continued to leave a note every time I saw one of their plays until I finally got an audition. And on top of the familiarity of, of these characters and their experiences and their language, did you initially have an interpretation of what this play was about and what this story was trying to say about the Black American experience? No, I didn't. I didn't judge it. I didn't come up with any any themes or any interpretations. I was just totally uh, uh, just snatched in by the warmth and the recollections of, of, of a life that I always thought was extremely valuable, that it didn't seem like anywhere else that anybody thought it was valuable. Just the existence of African-American people in this country and the journey that we've taken and the way we navigate our space and the way we enjoy each other's company, our banter. And no one ever seemed to think that was important. And then it was so important in this moment because here it was on Broadway with 1,100 people riveted. So it's like, wow, it's important to them. So there is a place for the life that I know, the people that I know, my culture, on the biggest stages in the world. So no, I didn't come up with any themes or ideas. I just was happy to be a part. There's a great Viola Davis quote, I think, that, that speaks to that point. She said that what's truly novel and truly progressive are stories in which black people are just allowed to be black Americans, living their lives, having their conversations, going about their routines, rather than uh, these stories being about the experiences they undergo that bring them pain. And although elements, of course, of like the inescapable racism and oppression faced by people of color at that time in America do eventually become present in the movie, there really is so much time and space within the film given just to seeing these guys interact. Why was that such an important thing from August's play for you to protect as you brought it to screen? Because August always said that everything contained in human life is contained in black life. And that's simply just saying that we're human. And so 
if if I for me a lot of lessons that August taught me about don't be afraid to let your characters talk and and always think of yourself as the center of the world things like that so so you have to remember as a as an actor where I first you know I'm still an actor but but is where I first got some sort of prominence 80% of the time I was working with white directors and white writers who, whether I was doing Shakespeare or Pinter or Ibsen or, or Shaw, who didn't really uh, know or recognize the importance of black life. They just said, fit in, Rube. Go, Ruben, go fit in. August didn't make me fit in. I was the world. I was in the center of the world. The people that I know and, and cherish were the center of the world. So I had to make sure that I did not lose the essence of that in the film, that I celebrated that as well. So I was not afraid to let an actor have a monologue, a character to have a monologue. I couldn't do all of them, but I did let them all have an aria. They all sang an aria and some longer than others, but they all got to sing their song. And um, I wanted to make sure that I honored that opposed to the, the Hollywood cliche, open it up, open it up, open it up, you know, make something happen, make something happen. What's happening is relationships are developing. What's happening is relationships are being navigated. Situations, you know, uh, uh, conflicts, uh, joy, uh, sexuality, sex, you know, uh, intellect, uh, know-how. It's just like all this is being navigated. So if I'm going to have the power of August's play or his writing, uh, interpreted through film, I can't leave the muscularity of what he he does best. He's a wordsmith. So all of a sudden I start cutting all the words and just make it all cin cinema. I know it's a motion picture. I'm telling story through pictures as well. So if I removed language, I, I would write in the script the kind of images I wanted to see that would actually fill in that space that the language had been taken out. But since I knew the language so well and the melodies of August's uh, uh, cadences that I could pick up the melody even by taking out a whole phrase of the of the of the song. I could still connect the melody, and you still you would hear you still have the rhythm in the in the, in the uh, authenticity of black language in black style. I hope August never sort of asked you to pay him back for that ticket that you snuck in. Um, you went from <laughs> <laughs> you went uh, you know you. Became I paid him back. I paid him back many times. <laughs> Yes, you can say that again. I would take him to breakfast every chance I could. <laughs> you know, you guys were close friends. I've read a profile of August once that, that said that he had this punching bag suspended from his ceiling behind his desk and that whenever he hit a roadblock in his writing, he'd throw a few punches till he had that kink in his story all figured out. How does your writing process compare, Ruben? I can't see a punching bag behind you, but um, presumably you have rituals, you have a certain time of day that perhaps you like to work and certain accompaniments to writing that help you get a great work like Ma Rainey onto the page. How do you write? I'm most alive in the morning, early, before the sun comes up. That's when I write. Some writers write very late. I write very early. And by about, about six o'clock, you know, from six to six, that's my day, you know, and if, if, if what I try to do is make sure that I keep my mind and my focus in on the task. So if it, 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 with with a writer, it doesn't always flow the writing. The ideas don't always flow. So how do you how do you tease those ideas? I start looking at documentaries. I start listening to music. But long as it's about the period in the subject that I'm dealing with, like 
uh, like for instance, I'd be I'd be writing Ma Rainey or something. And um, though I had the Bible right there with August, August wrote it. I just have to turn it into a film, you know, and and and, and keep him there. Uh, like sometime I would get stuck with how I'm going to make this transition and how I'm going to. And then I'll start reading about just blues women of the 20s. I'll start reading about Sippy Wallace and Victoria Spivey and, and uh, uh, Bessie Smith and uh, uh, Alberta Hunter. I just started... I start reading about their history as well, because the celebration of Ma is the celebration of all these dynamite uh, black women uh, entertainers of that time. And even more so into the black women who have been the, the backbone of, the, of our communities. So so I expanded, but still the focus, though it's a wider net I'm casting, it's it's about the majesty of black womanhood and independence and freedom of knowing who you are what you are, why you are, and your worth. So I would just I'd say, so how do I fortify that and continue to fortify that? So I'd give myself, I'd hire my, when I hire myself, because, you know, somebody hires me through my company. So I have to treat my company the same way I treat your company. I treat, you know, you, you want a day's work, I'm going to give you a day's work. So I just keep focused for that amount of time. I, I make a minimum of eight hours and I don't go over 12. And was that something you managed to discipline yourself to do without too much trouble? Because I mean, sometimes writers who have a very close personal attachment to a story, you know, it's it's very easy to fall into a spiral of you know, late nights, obsessive working patterns. I wonder whether that was the case with you, given your incredible closeness with August and what I presume was a deep desire to tell his story in a way that honoured him. Well, there is a... There is a personal connection that I have to honor, but also I have to honor a professional connection that I have to the task at hand. So, you know, um, I have to treat August as much as I revere and love his work. I have to treat him like I would I would treat any other writer in the, in the, in the, in the respect that nothing is is so precious that it's not expendable. So I have to. But what you have to the balancing act is if it's expendable. You know, you can't take off a limb and think you're going to have the same movement with your arm. What is what is compensating for that and how? So I, I um I honor uh, 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 the, the the relationship and the connection, August, because it, it, it's empowering. But it also is is burdensome because you you. Listen, if you write some other film, if I write some other film and people feel, well, we don't we don't love this take. We, we're going to thank you, Ruben. Here's your pay. We're going to get somebody else to write on it, too. You say, OK, well, you know, you get a little bit of dent in your armor, but you keep trucking. So because of my respect for him and our relationship um, and what he what he means to the African-American community. So I. It was more pressure. <laughs> get it right, Ruth. Get it right. So then I have to back off of that and just say, you, you, you know how to do this, and you know what August was about, what it, what was important to him, and get him, get as much of that as you can here, you know. And and you know, yeah, it's kind of complicated, but that's it. <laughs> but as you mentioned, you had his play as the Bible, and you were bringing it to screen. But the play, I believe, is like two and a half hours long, and you were trying to condense this story into 90 minutes. Can you tell listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with the book what some of the things were that you had to cut and how difficult some of those decisions were? 
Well, I wasn't trying to cut it to 90 minutes. I said, I, I'd have kept it three hours, <laughs> you know, but they, they kept, you know, I mean, the first script that I handed them was about 150 pages and they looked at me and just raised an eyebrow and said, uh, take this back and come back later. And then I came back with like 129. Then I came back with like 112. Then I was really knew that we had it at 106. And then I ended up giving them 96 pages. But I'd have kept it at 149 if it was up to me. But my job said, and my 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 um, the people that hired me said they're not accepting that. So I had to made the challenge harder, you know. To okay, if it gets to the point where I don't feel that August is there, then I have to just relinquish. Just say I'm the wrong writer because I don't think I can go any I can't go any further away from the story than this. And I, and I didn't think they wanted to lose me and n- never got to that point where where we were considering, unless they got mad at me and said, you want somebody else to do this job? I'm like, no, I don't. But if you need somebody else, we never got to that point, you know, because one thing we we all agreed upon is we wanted a great film. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to make sure that it's it was an August Wilson film. So uh, uh, when I say that, I mean, he is the source. The film is a Ruben Santiago Hudson film, even though it says, says a George C. Wolf film, you know, because DJ is, they strong. But <laughs> but it's August Wilson film uh, that I was assigned and blessed to have the opportunity to deliver, you know, and then you hand it to this great director and then he throws his vision on it. You know what I mean? And all the time I'm watching way back in the shadow saying, I hope, I hope he keeps that. I hope he keeps that. Because after, after the writer does does his or her work, then basically they are on the sideline as a cheerleader, you have no more involvement, you know, unless there's some special things. So we need you to come back and do something. No, after that, um, I, you know, just hope and pray that, that August would be proud and that, that I would be happy with what I had submitted. You know what I mean? I don't think I answered your question, but <laughs> I answered something, you know, <laughs> Was there anything that it was painful to lose as you went through that process of cutting down, cutting down? Yes, everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. And I say this honestly. I would, I wanted, as I said uh, uh, in the outset of this, an, uh, this long answer, I'd have kept it at 100. I'd have kept it at, the, the, hey, listen, there are movies that are two and a half hours. You know, it's just unfortunately there aren't many black movies that are two and a half hours. You know, it's still this old stereotype that that what black people have to say is not important. It is. You know, people might not want to admit it, but since this is a, a time of truth, that's the truth that I have found out in my career. You know, uh, your life is not important, and what you have to say and deal with is not important. And so, I mean, they still have things, you know, black films don't sell in Europe and stuff like that. Old ideas that are long been destroyed. You know, people want to get to know people, cultures. People are interested genuinely, and those that aren't interested, then stay in your corner and, and stay small minded. But generally, people are interested. I'm interested. That's why I go to, to see a Pinter play. That's why I go to see a David Henry, David Henry Wong play. That's why I'll go to see uh, Lorca, you know, because I am interested. And I think I'm not unusual being interested. I think most people are interested because it's fascinating how we're so different, yet we're so similar. We all want the same things. 
You know what I'm saying? So, so, but Hollywood has formulas and you fight against those ideas. You know, open it up, make it bigger, you know, da, 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 opposed to what's very important is the story. We're storytellers. So let me tell a good story. Fortunately for me, a good story was already told. I just have to trans, I have to, to translate into a different medium. Mm. But the great story is there. Now, how do I impact that story with, with, with my ideas, with, uh, which all of my ideas spur from what he has in the play? Everything that you see that's extended or, or introduced is from an idea that's already in the play. I didn't come and just go in the room, I'm going to come up with something great. No. Oh, that through line is there. We just never got a chance to follow through in the play. You know, like introducing Ma Rainey in the tent. That's her power. Because through, through this whole recording session, she's navigating her power. I want a Coca-Cola. Now, give him a microphone. I ain't doing nothing. You know, and, and I ain't signing nothing. I ain't doing nothing. You know, power. So until she signs that contract, she's the most powerful person in the world, in the world of this movie. And that's why it's so hard to sign that contract. That's why it takes so long. It ain't about getting that little bit of money. It's about I got to give up all my power. And so, so, so I put her in the most powerful place. So you could see what she was holding on to. In that tent, people were like sweating and crying. And in the film script, I say, you know, sweat pouring down the, the, the people's the ebony faces. Is it sweat or tears? Who cares? I said, these people are colored. This is a Saturday night and ain't no better place or thing to be. <laughs> That's just the way I write it, you know. <laughs> but before we get to that moment, there's an interesting scene in the film that's actually not in the screenplay. So it's nighttime, crickets are chirping, birds are hooting. We see this dense black forest and two breathless black figures running through it. There are dogs barking, which gives the impression of a chase. This is an image, of course, that we've seen a thousand times before in movies whose portrayal of the black American experience centers on their trauma. Instead, these two people arrive at a scene of joy and community, that tent scene, they were running to something rather than away. I was interested to ask about this because, as I mentioned, it's not in the screenplay. How did this scene find its way into the movie? And can you describe the playfulness of that moment? Because it seems like there's a, a comment being made about the type of story this is not. Well, uh, that's all George. You know, oh, really? if you read the script, my shot is a God shot way up above that show tent. With, with roads leading to the show tent, like I, I describe it as like spokes on a wagon wheel. That's my shot. And George is the director. So George's shot is, let me fool you. Let me, let me make you think we're running the runaway slaves or something, and, and, but we're running to something. So he's going to contradict what your thought pattern, what you've been trained to think. So I thought that was wonderful uh, uh, in, in, in what he did. And I also think if you'd have shot my God shot, that would have been wonderful too. And if I was directing, I'd have shot the God shot. I don't think you lose anything either way. And, and in all honesty, uh, uh, I don't think you gain anything. I think it's uh, both ways to open it up, I thought would be wonderful. Your description of a God shot, that's kind of appropriate because you treat that opening sequence in your script as pretty much a religious experience. You describe these people as being sanctified by Mars Blues. This scene, you, you'd I'd be love reading, to... man. You'd be on it. <laughs> yeah, I do my homework, Ruben. Um, this film about this incredible woman who's joyful in her gift and defiant in the ways that others try to exploit that gift. It might not work without this opening sequence where you communicate exactly how special her talent is. How did you approach? Yeah, this opening scene was it was it tricky communicating the brilliance of Ma? How did you get it on the page? 
Well, really, a, a lot of it was uh, in consultation with George. George and I kept talking about we're negotiating power, so we have to establish power. And in all the research that I have all around the house says that Ma's greatest power was in show tents in the eastern uh, southeast United States, that in these areas, it was like uh, a revival tent uh, in these areas. It was like the thing they had to look forward to when the world was beating them down. Ma Rainey was coming to town with her train and car and her dancers and her show and her, you know, so we have something to look forward to other than snatching cotton balls off off, off uh, vines or, or whatever, or pulling tobacco, working levee camps, Ma's coming. So I wanted to create what that meant to people. So in George, having those guys running is replicates what we're talking about. Ma's coming. Ma's here. So so I th- we think it's it was very important to establish that because... In the play, it starts out with the with the the first things you hear are the white men talking, and and that's not the first thing we want to hear in this in this movie. We wanted to feel Ma Ma Rainey, and that's why because in the play she comes in on page forty eight, and so I couldn't wait to page forty eight. Everybody keeps talking about Ma's coming, Ma's coming. You know, so I I let you see. So while you're waiting, what you're waiting for? There is going to be a tornado. And, and we've seen the power of the, of the impact of that tornado. Hey there, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you that this episode of Script Apart is also sponsored by Coverfly. If you're a screenwriter who's still getting your work out there, you'll love Coverfly because they curate the best screenwriting talent discovery programs all in one place. On Coverfly, you can submit your script to writing fellowships, labs, competitions, and festivals, and track the status for your submission using your very own Coverfly Writer dashboard. To date, hundreds of screenwriters have met their manager or agent through Coverfly. These writers have gone on to write for massive Hollywood companies like Universal, Netflix, CBS, Amazon, and Blumhouse. Coverfly is helping make the entertainment industry a more accessible place using its data-driven talent discovery platform. If you're an emerging screenwriter with a finished script, be sure to check out Coverfly.com today. Check the link in this episode's show notes to learn more. Okay, back to the conversation. You intercut these scenes in your draft with glimpses at what was happening at the time for black Americans and how Ma Rainey's music was intersecting with some of those big social changes. So you describe this montage of archival images from the Great Migration, black folk on train cars packed to the gills and buckboard wagons stacked with families heading north. The field workers watch the trucks and wagons disappear up the road, fueled by Ma Rainey's song. There's not a lot of explicit mention of the Great Migration in the movie, but it feels like an important backdrop to the film. How important would you say that historical context is to this story? Well, in the original, my original script of that, which I should put in there, I'm going I'm to I'm donate somewhere. I actually shoot that footage instead of archival photos. That footage, we're talking about movies now, we have to talk about money. When I first write it, I don't write concerned about money. Uh, you know, I may ask you, what's the budget? And they always say, oh, just write your movie. And then I write this huge movie. And they say, no, nah, that's going to cost too much money because I had trains going. You got to find a 1920s train. I had the buckboard wagon just driving up the road. I had people picking cotton. Okay, you got to get cotton season, unless it's archival uh, uh, film. You got to get cotton season. You got you to rent that field. You got to get the people out there who can pick it. 
You know, so <laughs> those things add up after when, when you hand them that script and they said, no, we can't shoot that. So you got to do something different. So you you go the easy route. I always write the film the most difficult. I say, I'm not going to worry about how to make it happen. You make it happen. I'm the writer. I'm going to show you what a great story is. I'm going to hand you a great story. You film it. And then they start telling you, we can't film this. We can't have a swamp. You said, we need a levee camp. That means we got to find a levee camp where, you you know, people build levees. We don't have that. They do have them somewhere. But you got to go to that location. It might be in, in Louisiana, might be in Mississippi. Then you got to get that cotton, got to be in Tennessee or Memphis. You know, then you got to get so, so they said, Rube, archival photographs, so I you know, archival <laughs> photographs. And, but I described the things that I would have filmed given the kind of budgets they give to Marvel, <laughs> Marvel movies. You know? Yeah, that's so interesting because the film does retain such an intimacy of a play. And I don't know, there's a lot of plays that get adapted. They often lean into the sort of possibilities of the medium. There are different sets and the different editing rhythms and cuts within a scene. It's a whole different storytelling language. But Ma Rainey, I thought, had it retained a lot of the sort of feel of a play, even though it was cinematic. And I thought that was a, uh, you know, sort of a purposeful thing. But it sounds like it might have been born out of practicality as well. Somewhat. But no, we, we, you can't lose the essence of this is a, a play. Mm. A play that was written about a specific group of people in a specific place. I don't mean general place, a recording studio at, for a specific amount of time. So I think you lose some of the power if you start opening it up too much for the sake of it's a film. Let's do something different. You hurt the muscularity and the brilliance of August's writing. Some of the combustion of the play is because of the confines. And so in turning it from a play that's written that takes place in the fall to a play that takes place in the summer, you add more combustion, more heat, more pressure. So we wanted to make that, how do we, how do we raise the stakes of the pressure? And if you start taking it out and going places, you start diluting it. We had enough of going outside. There's a car accident. You know what I'm saying? There's a, um, I, I use that alley, them coming down the alley, because I wanted you to see slow drag toting that base coming down the, the L train. You know, so it's, the, but, but once we come down, we go in. And George thought it would be interesting to add that when she sent him to the store, that they would walk in the store, you know, because he, you know, and all the white guys just stop and look. Uh, so I said, okay, so boom. But, uh, he, he felt that that would, that would add to storytelling and anything that, that builds storytelling that gives you more power is good for the story. But we definitely didn't want to spend time making it a movie about them going to the store. What happened then? We, all we know is he came back with the Coca-Cola, you know. Your screenplay then drops us into Bronzeville, Chicago, 1927, where a scorching hot summer sun looms over, as you put it here. Um, the heat is a really interesting aspect of this movie. Uh, it contributes to this tinderbox feeling that's going to build and build throughout the film. Um, we don't get to meet Ma yet. Uh, that's, that's to come. We do get to meet some of her band, though, including Levy. Uh, so Levy was played, of course, by Chadwick Boseman, who died tragically before the film's release. Um, so much has been said about what he brought to this performance and how this performance, just for so many people, underlined the size of his loss. Um, 
Your introduction to this character is really interesting. We see him enthralled by these fancy shoes in a shop window. He buys them. Uh, there's obviously kind of a narrative purpose to these shoes. They're going to be what sparks the confrontation at the end of the movie. Was there something thematically that they meant to you as well? Well, in black culture, um, particularly people from the South, your hat and your shoes, it was very important. You couldn't have dirty shoes on and you, could, and you, and you always needed to have a nice hat. I mean, even men that had no jobs had nice hats, had a, had a hat, even if it wasn't, wasn't so nice to you, it was uh, something precious and a status symbol. You know, so they, you know, even my mother told me, who's, she's from the South, she always says, you know, don't go nowhere, dirty shoes, and, and, and you know, and, and take your hat off when you come into the house. So that meant that I, I would have a hat, you know. So um, that status, as you noticed, all the black men had hats. And then, then we're talking about the 20s. That was part of... Uh, that was black men called at their crown. And uh, that sh those shoes, because they were floor shimes, it, you know, meant another level of status. Um, it, 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 it's like having, you know, Tony Awards and, and Obie Awards and it's status. So that was his status symbol. I beat you playing craps last night and I used your money on some shoes. <laughs> you know, so it's teasing. And that's what, what these guys... Uh, uh, use their time doing bantering, one-upsmanship, or naysaying the other man. And yeah, as you say, when Levy reaches the studio, there is a lot of banter and one-upmanship. A lot of the conversation centres around him wanting to play his arrangement of a song, but his bandmates know that Ma won't go for it. And of course, inevitably, they're right. This is really interesting. Um, what was the deeper meaning of this standoff around this arrangement? So Levy should kind of represent a threat to Ma. She's in the twilight of her career. The blues as an art form is kind of moving on. And Levy, in all his spirit and pledges to one day have his own band, he kind of represents a future in music that she's not a part of. Is that kind of what forms part of her resistance to him? Well, her resistance is to anything that would usurp her power. Her resistance, what Ma has found in, at this time in her life is she knows exactly who she is and why. And she also knows that she is free. She's a decision maker. And so when you, when you buck that power, when you usurp that power or try to, to, to wrangle that power from her, then you got yourself a fight. And she lets him know. You know, that in no uncertain terms. So Levy is absolutely right about music moving forward and that he knows how to move it forward. Ma is absolutely right, that, but this is my stuff. So the conflict is built on two people that, that think they're right. That's what conflict is. I'm right and you're right. But we're not right about the same thing. You know, you might say, you know, that it's real hot today. And I'm saying it's kind of warm. Mm. So and for me, it's warm. But for you, it's hot. You said, no, it's hot. No, it's warm, man. It's, it's not that hot. Yesterday was hot. It was like 10 degrees high. Well, it's hot to me. So we got conflict. So so because both of them are very strong minded and both of them, none of them will, will, will back up. He asked her to fire him. Well, go and fire me. So she said, all right, you fired. And he said, I don't care. <laughs> you know, because he's also trying to say, he does care. It hurts. Mm -hmm. But he's also trying to save face with Dusty May. Saying that I'm powerful. He tells me, he says, I'm going to have my own band. 
I'm powerful. I write music and everything. And now Mog threatens his status and he gets wounded. You mentioned Dussie May there, and I'm really glad that you brought her up because she is such an interesting character and she plays a small, but I think quite important role in, in helping us understand who this character of Ma is and the, the multiple sides to her personality. So Dussie, to the best of my knowledge, wasn't based on any one romantic partner from real life, but Ma really was an openly queer woman. Now, clearly that's something that August in his play, he didn't want to just gloss over. He wanted to acknowledge that on stage. And that's something that you've carried through into, into your film version. Can you tell me what you found so compelling about their relationship? I don't know, to, to me, like there's genuine affection there, but there's also something a little bit tragic and, and maybe even transactional for Dussie. Well, first of all, you have to be very, very careful uh, uh, when you when you describe Ma's sexuality, because don't forget Ma had two husbands and an adopted mm-hmm. son, and she had several women. And so I think Ma was free. And it was a time of freedom. Of course, she was attracted to women, but she was attracted to men, too. And so I think Ma did what she wanted to do when she wanted to do it. And if she says, that's going to be mine, Ma made it hers. Dussie May, that's mine. So, so, and if she looked over and thought she wanted it to be Cutler, you mine. It depends, you know, so that was the 20s. 1927 is when this play takes place. Men were doing the same thing. County Cullen uh, uh, sailed across on his honeymoon to, 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 from New York to London with his best buddy, Harold Jackman, the handsomest man in Harlem. And his wife was on the cruise. I mean, so Wallace Thurman, Elaine Locke, men were doing their thing. And then women, uh, Ethel Waters, Phyllis Bentley. So it was a time of people finding their power and, and gleaming it around, saying, I am powerful. So, yeah, I was queer, but she was what she wanted to be when she wanted to be it. You know what I mean? And what's tragic about it is because Dusty May finds her way, whatever that way is to get on the path to a better life, she's going to find it. Whether she was in love with Ma or not, that's not evident anywhere in, in the play. But what was evident is Dusty May knows to find her way on the right path to a better life. And Ma was that way. And so, you know, uh, um, I think it's wonderful to show that, to show that, you know, you don't have to be any one thing. Or if, and if you don't want to be, you could be everything and, 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 or anything. So, so it's great to see that kind of freedom and power and, and, and freedom of expression particularly from a black person in the 20s and a woman. Yeah. You know, so that that made me tremendously proud to be able to 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 to, you know, to uh, not make that any more emphatic, but to make sure it was included, you know, because maybe somebody would not want to include it. I thought it was very important. August included it. Uh, uh, George took it up another level. I took it up another another level. And I also took it up another level with her with uh, with. um uh, Levy, because if Levy was actually going to usurp Ma Rainey, then Dusty May needed to be in a power position to be able to take that too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so when she yeah. she gets with Levy in the basement, she don't have to submit to Levy. She snatches Levy. And if you read the script, you'll see she takes Levy. She decides, go on, stop, stop, stop. And then she takes him. And, and George said to me one time, are they, they going to really do, do the thing? And I said, yeah, they're going to do the thing. <laughs> So I said, if she's going to go, she's going to really win him. She's going to steal him. And she stole at me. 
And the other person who arrives with Ma is Sylvester. That character is is an amazing insight into another side of Ma. You know, her generosity. We've seen a lot of like the brashness and defiance of Ma, but Sylvester and the way that she really sort of fights for his, you know, uh, chance to to have this involvement in the record and to get paid for it. It seems like this character's, uh, you know, being used to sort of show a different side of Ma. Is is that fair to say? Yes, yes. You know, and um, also it shows the side of Ma empowering her community, the people that she cared about, making sure that they were okay, making sure that that is her nephew, making sure that he finds his way to a, a better life, that he can not just say, I, I, got, I got a nice place to live in a good suit, but to say, I am somebody. I matter. I, I count. Um, so she wanted to give him responsibility, accountability, a position and something that would be difficult for him to do. And she was convinced him that you can do it. And once you do this, it shows you can conquer any other thing, that, any impediment in your way. You can conquer it. And so it was important to her uh, 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 that he, he was successful and that he can accomplish the things he set out to do. So that shows her her sensitivity and not only her sensitivity, but her grace. Because if not, you'll see just this powerful, just this woman is chewing, chewing these people's heads off. But no, then you see the way she talks to Sylvester. You get the one I said to get him. Come in now, Sylvester. Now you just take your time, okay? Which shows the dichotomy of Ma. You know, that she could be just as hard as, as nails, and yet she could be just as, as sweet as, as a rose. And speaking of dichotomies, Ruben, we've seen this kind of like arrogant, energetic, maybe arrogance a bit strong, but you know, this kind of, Levy has displayed himself, he's displayed one side of his character, but as preparations are kind of proceeding for the recording, we see a whole nother side of Levy. There's that incredible monologue that he has where he explains his backstory. That is such a powerful and emotive moment in the film. Was it emotive and powerful to write? Yes. Yes, it was very powerful and, and cathartic in a way and painful and um, because it's, it's the metaphor for, for many, many black men in this country, if we look back at the history, uh, the way the way that black men have been um, been abused away, their image, their contributions, their beauty, their intellect, uh, their their everything has been snatched, distorted, damaged deranged and and what is the result of that there's deep scars there's deep pain that we have to figure out how to navigate just to just to not explode all the time i mean i have four brothers and and all of us can tell you endless stories about how much humiliation we've had to face you know just you know uh, how many opportunities that have come for us to be totally destroyed killed maimed and so August uses that speech, in my opinion, as metaphor for a lot of the damage that's been done to black malehood, manhood in this country. And yet, because it teaches you what can happen to you, he tells about what happened to his father. If you decide, I need vengeance, 
and I need, you know, I need to feel, you know, I need to get revenge, then you get destroyed. So you got to figure out how to navigate this thing and win another way. So I know I can say yes, sir, to whoever I want to say yes, sir, is what Levy says. Levy, you don't tell me I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spooked up by the white man. Let me tell you who I am. I just know how to handle him. Because if not, it's not going to turn out good for me. I'm going to win. I'm going to win doing it the way that only way I can win through my art, through, through my talent. I'm going to win, though. I'm going to take advantage of, of what, what the white man has through my talent. But I can't go in there and say, you won't give me. No, I'm going in and say, just, just let me play the songs. Mr. Sturdivant, let me play the song. You ain't heard of me play him. And then you turn to them and say, don't say nothing to me. You know what I'm saying? So the dual existence that we have had to live in this country with as people of color, you know, that we live a duality. We have, to, we have to present ourselves as acceptable to a white world every day. And then we get to go home and be exactly who we are. I got I to gotta present myself when I'm in a white room to make everybody that white in that room comfortable. If I show my passion too strong, I'm angry or I'm loud, you know, and, and if, and if you know, but I can be as loud as I want in my house. I'm loud now. My wife would be telling me in a minute, why don't you calm down? But um, that duality is, 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 is tough. And if you don't know how to deal with it and navigate it, you know, you're on a path for destruction. You know, so that's what Levy is telling them. I know how to handle it. Given everything you've just explained, what does the fate that awaits Levy at the end of this film mean to you? By that final scene, we'll have seen the band finally record, we'll have seen the simmering tension between Marr and Levy erupt into an argument in which Levy is fired. We'll also have watched Levy think everything's fine, best thing that ever happened to me, because he struck a deal with the white producer at the sessions to record some of his own compositions. There's then this heartbreaking scene set, I believe, very purposefully on a flight of stairs in which the producer is always like a step or two above Levy. The producer is is essentially ripping him off, offering to take those songs off your hands for a measly five bucks a piece. And then in that moment of absolute dejection following that, back in the rehearsal room, Levy takes offence at what he perceives to be Toledo stepping on his shoes, the shoes that he took so much pride in at the beginning of the movie. He plunges a knife into Toledo's back, up to the hilt. Toledo lets out a sound of surprise and agony. Cutler and slow drag freeze. Toledo falls backwards with Levy, his hand still on the knife, holding him up. Levy is suddenly faced with the realisation of what he has done. He stepped on my shoe. He did, honest. Cutler, he stepped on my shoe. What did he do that for? Toledo, what did you do that for? It's absolutely heartbreaking. <laughs> what does that ending mean to you? Is there a lesson to extrapolate from what happens to this complicated kid who had the world ahead of him? Levy, Levy, in his his pain and in in his total destruction, everything went wrong for Levy that day, and he struck out. And what he struck out and damaged was himself. He killed his history, he killed his life, he killed his career, he hurt his community, he hurt it, he killed himself. Two people died in that moment. Two people at least. And then there's a line that happens early on in the play, early on in the movie. That trumpet player, is he gonna be here? Sturdivant says that to Irvin. Yeah, he said to Levy, he said he's gonna be here. So I let you know in the end of the movie, which does not happen in the play, 
why he asked that question. Because he was going to get that music, even though he says, nah, we can't use that music. Later. I'll tell you what, then give it to me. Best I can do is give you this money here. And if, if the man really didn't want it, he wouldn't have snatched it out of his hand and stuck that money in his pocket. Once you stick that money in his pocket and you take the money, the deal is set. So if he really didn't want the music, he just said, here, thanks for writing it. Take five dollars. And he would have walked away. Sturdivant, I'm talking about. Sturdivant does not walk away without the music. And then you see why. Because it's business. And that's the way business has been done when it pertains to people of color in this country since we've been since we were thrown on the soil, man. You know, and, and it's, 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 uh, it's tough, it's sad sometimes, but it's also a victory to see what we have accomplished despite the past the way business has been done. Well, Ruben, I could sit here and talk to you all day about this incredible film. Thanks so much for taking the time out today, man. Um, I love this film so, so much. And Thank you I appreciate so much. you coming on Script Apart. Thank you for your patience and, and your time. And I really appreciate the fact that you let me have an audience with you today. So thank you. Have a great day. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, the Script Apart podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.